Uh, we're in part two of our series, our Lenten series, and that's on God of Miracles. And I'm really excited about this for a couple of different reasons. But one, this isn't a this isn't based this isn't really a topical series. I mean, we're calling it God of Miracles, but this is really an exegetical series. All we're doing is taking the six uh, signs and miracles of Jesus in the Book of John and just walking through them and picking them apart. And th- these are where Jesus shows up in John doing something really special, and we're stopping and looking at them. And it and it uh, or the seven miracles. Sorry, I think I said six. Um, and uh, so we're in the second one. And uh, today we're in John chapter 4, and we're going to read that in just a second. But before we do, I need to set it up for you and let you know uh, what's going on. Uh, Two of the things that are going on in this passage were already mentioned in our prayer time. Um, First of all, uh, we know that John in the book in general, he set up the book by kicking off the whole gospel of John with what verse? We've said it a couple times together. John 1.1. Somebody knows it, say it. In the beginning was the word. That's more than somebody. That's a bunch of you know it. Everybody's being bashful on us today. Um, so the beginning is the word. The word. And we said that's the nick- Jesus nickname is the word. And uh, how that's just an amazing nickname to call him the word. Uh, and when we look at him and know that all definition starts with him. And then that word becomes flesh. And he's the living definition. Now, um, he's the living definition of God and the living definition of reality. We already know about the the wedding, the Cana wedding, water to wine. Jesus from there goes down to Jerusalem. And when he goes down to Jerusalem, he overturns the tables for the first time. He does that twice. He does it first at the beginning of his ministry and then again at the end of his ministry. Did you know that? One's like right around Palm Sunday, but the other one says he's kicking things off. You know, just want to get it heated up, get the ministry going, go down to the temple and make a mess. And uh, so that's how he starts things off in his ministry. And then he comes back up and he makes, he makes some enemies down in Jerusalem. We know that he's doing signs and wonders down in Jerusalem, but John doesn't document what those signs and wonders are. All he says is that he's doing them. So when John lists the, se- the seven miracles in uh, his gospel. He doesn't do that because they're the only miracles that he does, and his perspective is different than Luke or Matthew or whatever. It's that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have done their best to outline the story of Jesus. What John is doing later on is he comes after those are out there, and he reflects back on the story of Jesus, and he's trying to show us a picture of Jesus that we might miss. And this is the wise old sage of John, who was Jesus' closest friend, perhaps, on earth, who walked tightly with him and has had years and years to reflect on who Jesus is and what the story is all about. And so the gospel of John is to give us a different picture. And he's like like telling us he's the word, he's the light, he's the life. And he starts off with these theological perspectives of who Jesus is in our life, in this world, and in the church. And then the rest of his gospel seeks to show us how those things work themselves out. And so these seven miracles that we see recorded in John, he records them for specific reasons, just like everything else that he records in the gospel. So Jesus goes down and he performs the after wedding of Canaan and after cleansing of the temple. He has this conversation with Nicodemus down there. You know the famous passage in John 3. Uh, that's the football sign you see all the time of John 3.16, uh, which we can say together, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the one that most people still know in the King James. That's the one that, and so that's the born again passage. And then on the way back up, he starts heading back up to Galilee. And on the way back up, he stops in this place called Samaria where he meets the woman at the well. Uh, one of the just amazing stories of scripture. And Jesus has been hanging out there and there was a multiple day. Jesus rarely stays more than one day, actually rarely stays more than a couple hours in a spot. But he camps out there for a few days and he hangs out and there's this great revival that happens in Samaria where all these people come to Christ because he confronted them on what was going wrong, but then also invited them to drink deeply of life. Now at the end of that is where the story picks up and where we find ourselves in John chapter 4. I'm going to have you stand with me in honor of God's word, please, as we read this text, starting in verse 43. After the two days, and that's the two days in Samaria with the woman at the well in her community, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. It's a little bit of a weird statement here because he's not going to Nazareth, his hometown. He's not coming from Nazareth, his hometown. So why does Jesus say that? And the only real clear picture is there's a principle in Jesus' ministry that he never seems to stay in one spot too long. Because when a prophet comes in, when a person who's as confrontational as Jesus speaks truth, he's got to let that kind of marinate for a while, and he might come back to it. But to stay too long in that place ends up typically with resentment. And there's an important thing, an important picture of Christ in our own lives. He doesn't show up the same way every day, does he? It's different. One day I was reading this text and Jesus showed up. Another day I was having this conversation with someone and I need to be attentive to where Christ is. I can't assume that it's going to be the same way and in the same place all the time. And that's the basic principle that he's not going to stay in Samaria. Even though that's not his hometown, it could quickly become his hometown and then he wouldn't be welcome. Because after a while, he's got to move on. You know, he's got to keep rolling. He's got to keep doing. And you see that principle, that itinerant principle of Jesus' ministry. All right, I know we're reading, you're standing. Um, So, uh, sorry, verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem and at the feast, for they too had gone down to the feast. So there's the great miracles he had done down down there that John hasn't recorded. Verse 46, this is where we get to the story for the day. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come to Judea, come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, by the way, that's one o'clock, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and his household. 
This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. That's the reading of God's word. Let it bless your life. Have a seat. Join me in prayer, please. Father God, we just thank you for this moment right here. We thank you that you're the word and that you give us the written word, that you're the living word, that the word is alive and active. God, I just ask that all of us, we need different things today. We're at different places in our individual lives. We as a congregation need to hear from you and be led by you. And we as individuals and as families need to hear from you. I ask Holy Spirit, we just invite your presence. Anyone who's in agreement with that, just in your heart right now, say, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to move in our hearts, to, uh, to take that word and to, and to dive deep, to show me what I need to know today. Just invite the Holy Spirit to do that work in each one of us. God, may we not hear the words of Tim, the sinner, but may we hear the words of Jesus, our King and our God. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You ever wondered about someone who has had almost no relationship with the Lord Uh, Maybe they've never accepted Christ into their own life. Maybe they haven't acknowledged their own uh, need for God or their own sin. They haven't received Christ's forgiveness. They don't have a saving relationship with God, no walk with him. But then there's that moment where they need something and they ask from God. Have you ever wondered what happens in that moment? Does God hear? Does God listen? Is God going to answer that prayer? Does God care? How's that all work? Maybe take that a step further. When I'm not living in great fellowship with the Lord, and I'm asking something of the Lord, does he still hear it? Is that, you know, where's that at? And on the scale of like how close we are to the Lord or how far away we are from the Lord, is his ear on the same scale with us or his willingness to answer? This, this story right here is an awesome story to help us navigate that question. Spectacular story. This guy doesn't have faith. He doesn't have a relationship with God. We know that because the end of the story is him coming to faith. So the whole grand total of this story is that this guy ultimately has faith. But at the beginning, he doesn't have a saving relationship with the Lord anyway. But this guy has a moment where he's crying out to God. Now, John tells us that this is the second sign. Signs always point to something. They always show us something. They're telling us something. They're guiding. They're revealing something. And clearly the signs in Scripture, all signs in Scripture are supposed to lead primarily to God, to Christ. And so the sign is a sign of who God is and who Christ is. Signs tend to show up at specific places when we're on the road. Sometimes you're just driving down and there's a mile marker or there's a speed limit marker. But generally where you see a whole bunch of signs is where? Where do you consistently see signs? At intersections, yes, at intersections. So whether that's a four-way stop sign or whether that's an off-ramp on the highway, once there's an intersection, you have a decision to make and you need a sign to help you make the decision, right? And that's the, the first direction, the first purpose of a sign. Now, signs also help us to stay on the right direction by mile markers and speed limits and however, you know, New York is 200 miles this way, you know, and, and it keeps you on the right path. Signs keep you going the right way, but... The primary purpose of a sign is to point toward the direction that you're wanting to go, to show you where to go. This man right here is at a very, very critical intersection in his life. He knows that there's a critical intersection. He believes that the critical intersection in his life is that his son is about to die. 
And that will change drastically his life. And he doesn't want his son to die. And so he's, the intersection he's very aware of is he's an official. And as an official, he has some sort of power. We don't know if he's a Roman official, if he's a Jewish official. In other accounts of different stories, we see a centurion in a similar situation. We see the Syrophoenician woman in a similar situation. But in this situation, all we're given is this guy was an official and he was a dad. And so he has some source of power, and yet he is at a place right now where he feels extremely powerless because the thing he cares about so much is his kid, and his kid's sick, and he can't do anything about it. Where is the place in your life where there's an intersection right now? The place where you are, I can do this, but I can't do this. And these things are at an impasse. And unless something else happens... I can't fix this, but I know that my life will be changed by which way this thing goes. Think about that. And then realize that Jesus sees at least three more intersections in this guy's life than he sees. The first intersection that Jesus sees in this guy's life is faith and doubt. Or faith and independence. See, for this guy, he is not a believer. We know it, again, because of the end of the story. But there's something going on. He's not fully in submission to God. He's not fully following God with his life. And yet, right now, he feels the need for God. And he's coming to God, and he's asking something of God, even begging something of God. Because the intersection that he feels, it opens the door to another intersection. Because now he and God can have a conversation that they wouldn't have otherwise have. So now he's begging, and he's even a little bit hopeful. He's heard the signs, he's heard what Jesus has been doing, and he says, I need that for my life. And so he's going and asking something of God. What's interesting is, he actually takes a journey... And he goes and meets Jesus in Cana. He lives in Capernaum, but because of the need he has, he's willing, almost like picture a parent who knows their child is near death with cancer, and there's some amazing cancer center out in California. And so they do everything they can to connect with that cancer center for the purpose of trying to bring healing to their life. This guy, he's concerned about his child, and he wants to do whatever it takes, and he heard about this weird healer, and so he's going to go find this weird healer. And he's going to go ask him to help. He's not looking for God to be Lord of his life right now. He's just looking for someone to heal his kid. And when he comes and he says to Jesus, would you please come and heal my kid? Jesus' response to him is bizarre. Isn't it? Did you hear his response? Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. I didn't realize I was asking for signs and wonders in order to believe. I just want my kid better. What are you talking about? You know, and the you there, when Jesus says you, that's a plural you. He says, unless you all see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Because what's happening is, is this guy is indicative of a deep problem that's all across the people of the day. Which he's like, you want to come to me when you have a need. You want the sign and wonder. You want the God who will hook you up to make your circumstances better. But belief is a whole different thing that says, you are in charge, you are God, and I need you all the time, and I want to know what you want for my life so I can submit to it and follow you. 
That's belief. This guy's not looking for that in his life. He's looking for his circumstances to get better. He's looking for the sign and wonder that'll help him out. And in that moment, how many of us have had the moment where we're like, God, if you will do this for me, then I will follow you or I will whatever, I will whatever. And I could see this guy entering into negotiations with God at this point. Jesus sees it from a mile away. And when the guy asks for his son to be healed, Jesus is not content with just healing his son. Why? Well, that's what the journey is all about here because Jesus is inviting him into something much deeper, much fuller. Jesus is always wanting to have a conversation with us about our life. The question is, are we listening to the conversation that he wants to have with us? And in this moment, when this guy's in desperate need and he's been living on his own, he's at a spot where this intersection, I can't handle that. I'm in a crisis. And Jesus says, we got a conversation started. Unless you have signs and wonders, you won't believe. What's the guy do? I don't know if the guy processes that. I don't know if he receives that. All he says is, there's no response to what Jesus says. The only thing he says is, would you please come before my son dies? I said, would you please? He doesn't actually say that. He commands Jesus. He says, come before he dies. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, but come. I need you. Jesus' response is incredible. His response at this moment is incredible. What he doesn't say, but what he does say is no. Because Jesus says, I will not come with you. And he doesn't come with him. And the guy says, come so my son can be healed. And he says, your son is healed. Go. And Jesus is like, you don't command me how to do this. Go. Your son is healed. Now, He has a decision to make because faith is the essence of things unseen and the presence of things hoped for is what Hebrews tells us. And so now there's this moment where the guy can't see the healing and an official being in charge, he's going to want to put handcuffs on Jesus and bring him down and say, show me how this works, make this work. And Jesus is like, I'm going to invite you to trust me and to believe me. Go. I will not come with you. Your son is healed. What does the man do? Believes the word that Jesus spoke to him. Bam! We have the beginning of faith. We have it. And Jesus realizes there's an intersection in this man's life and in everyone who's watching that wants to not have to trust God, but wants God to do things on their terms. That's what generally we tend to want. God to hook us up without us having to trust God. That's what we all want somewhere inside of us. God of our own life, but the power of God for our lives. And we want to command God what we need and have him give it to us without him commanding us how to live. Right? And that's generally what we tend to want. In this situation, there's this thing, and I think it's really important to address it at this point. There's a thought in, in a, a certain theology um, about signs and wonders, about manifestations of God, that if God would just show up and would do the miraculous all over the place, that people couldn't help but turn and pursue God. And people often will say, why doesn't God just like show up and put a big sign in the sky and start healing people? Why don't we see the healings the way they were in the scriptures? If God would just do that, then everyone would believe him. Well, really? Because When Jesus did all that, when he was hanging on the cross, there was only like two people left. 
And after all the signs and wonders that Jesus did, there was all sorts of people saying that he did that by the power of Satan. And that even when he was doing those signs and wonders, people were still leaving him as soon as he taught hard things. And they said, this teaching is too hard. We're out. See, signs and wonders don't lead to deep faith. Signs and wonders confound us. And they can affirm our faith and say, I knew God could show up. I prayed and he answered that thing and I knew God was good and I knew he'd show up. And manifestation, when God shows his signs, the number one thing it should lead us to is worship. We should be like, you are awesome. But evangelism, faith based in signs, is a fickle kind of faith. It's a kind of faith that needs God to do something outlandish in order for me to believe. Basic faith says, I am a created being, I am a creature, and there is a creator, and my job is to know what he wants and to submit to that. I don't need him to do something miraculous. As a matter of fact, there are signs everywhere. We are told that all of nature points to God, that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. We just sang a song a few minutes ago that says, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you. Every time I take a breath, it's a sign that God has grace for me because I didn't earn that breath. And so it better turn around and praise him. Signs should lead us to, to saying God is all over the place. What leads us towards God is faith. What's amazing about faith is it lets us see the signs that are all over the place. But if we don't have faith, we won't see the signs. And if God does something that blows our minds in that moment, we might see the sign, but eventually we'll somehow rationalize it away and say it wasn't a sign. I don't know about you, but there are definitely times in my life where God's done something spectacular in my life. And in that moment, it was incredible and it changed the way I felt about God. But there's times where I look back and almost totally forget that he even did it. And if I do remember, it doesn't hold the same sway over my life. I can tell the story and relish it, and it's cool. But the thing is, faith that's based in the supernatural requires then God always to be doing things that are supernatural. And if he was always doing things that were supernatural, pretty soon they would just be natural. I don't want God to have to blow my mind all the time. What I want is my faith to see that God is mind-blowing all the time. So grow our faith, God. Don't give us more. Open our eyes to what you're giving us all the time. Intersection number one, faith and doubt. Is God miraculous? Will God show up in the miraculous? Is God one that makes sense? The point of apologetics should be, the point of apologetics is the defense of the faith. The point of those things shouldn't be just to prove to people that God exists and that he's logical. It should be to show me how amazing God is. The point of signs, same thing. How amazing God is. My faith is there whether it makes sense to me or not. My faith should be there whether there's the miraculous or not. I trust and follow God. But then when I see how much he makes sense and when I see how amazing he is, I should, my heart should just start doing that thing where I'm like, did you see that? Did you see that? However, Jesus meets him at the intersection, doesn't he? Because this guy actually needs something. And even when we are seeking the sign and not seeking God, Jesus is like, a wonderful parent teaching someone how to walk. And he says, I'll meet you there. And he gives the guy what he needs 
to take the next step. And so he gets that miracle. And when he gets that miracle, here's the cool thing, is on his way back home, somebody tells him, right, that God healed. And when he does, what does he do? What's the first thing he does when he finds out his kid's healed? What time? What time? Because I'm going to go back and I'm going to prove that that was him and I'm going to worship him. And he does and he goes back and he doesn't just say, I got what I wanted, I'm out, see ya. What he does is he goes back and he says, I'm going to affirm that this was the work of God. And when he does, it says he believed and his whole family believed. Praise God. Praise God. That was the critical intersection number one. There's two more. The second one goes real quick here. Critical intersection in this guy's life is love and self-interest. The first is faith and doubt. The second is love and self-interest. Whether this guy's going to be all about him or whether he's going to be about the Lord and about building his kingdom. And the reason we know this is because this guy, you know, what in this moment, he desperately wants his kid to be healed. Complicated thing. Was that about him or was that about his kid? Yes, of course. I mean, which one of us, if, if someone we love dearly is in pain or is hurting or is at death's door, don't want that person healed for our own benefit? We want that person around for our own benefit. We also, of course, in love, want them healed for them, right? For them. Jesus, all the time, wants to, do, wants to bless us. Wonderful Father wants to bless us. When we pray and ask God for the miraculous, of course he wants to show up. Of course he wants to help us out. He's the most loving thing ever. He's the origin of love. He wants to bless. He wants to, but there's this question in him which is about on the deeper level, are we being healed? Is our heart going the right direction? By him giving us what we want right now, is he enabling our selfishness or is he bringing us deeper into his character of love? And so when we ask things out of selfish motivation, there's got to be this tension inside of God that says, I want to bless my kid. And I want to hook them up, and I know this is what they want, but is this going to be healthy for them? Because if the way my child understands right now is that anytime they want something, I just give it to them, we all know what that leads to, right? A spoiled child. But if what Jesus wants to teach us is who we were made to be, love, that we are not seeking our own interest, but the interest of others. We take on the form of the servant, become like Christ. And in that space, that's where Jesus says it's more blessed to give than receive. And that's why he says, if you ask anything in my name, it will be given to you. There's no way that asking for the Ferrari that I always wanted is in Jesus' name. Like that's not the name and the flow and the, that, that's not how it works, you know. But in the name of Jesus means in the name of love. God is love. And if I come to this situation and there's two or three of us together and we are loving deeply a person and a system and a, and a group of people and we're saying, God, we need you to show up on this level because we know this is what you want and we agree in faith about that. Confidence in that. Faith in that. Hold on to that one. You know? And say, God, can and God will move on behalf of his people as it draws them deeper to himself and into his character and for his kingdom. And this guy's at this intersection in his life where his life might have been all about him, but now he's at a place where someone who he loves deeply, he needs help for. And Jesus meets him at that place for his son. But here's the most amazing thing about Jesus. 
While this guy cares about his son, who does Jesus care about? Yeah, and his son, but him. So he cares about his son, but Jesus cares about his son. And so what's happening is, is he's like, I hear you, and I want to hook you up. And he doesn't say it, but inside of Jesus' mind, he's saying, and I will bless you. But I need to give you the greater blessing. I need to help you be the dad that you're supposed to be. And by the end of the story, it says that this man believed and his whole family believed. And he went to get healing for his son, but Jesus brings healing to him and eternal life to his family. Spectacular intersection that Jesus meets him at. One more intersection, and it's the intersection of prayer and pride. Prayer and pride. There's this one verse in James chapter 4, and it says, you have not because you ask not. You know how much we don't receive from God simply because we never ask? I mean, it's amazing how much the church doesn't receive from God because we just don't ask. We think about it. We wish for it. We might complain about it. We might worry about it. But consistently, honestly, coming to the Lord and asking for it. That's a different thing. That's a different thing. Pride and unbelief are the primary source of unanswered prayer. And pride and unbelief are probably the primary sources of why we have so many prayer requests. Because when we see the water level of struggle in our life rise, and we see all the difficult things happening in a culture or in a community or in a family, there's a really decent chance that part of the reason that things disassemble is because we haven't been out in front of it in prayer, tending to those things in prayer. And as they've disassembled, it causes this swell of problems in our life. And then we're in crisis like this guy's in his life and he's in crisis and he finally cries out to God. I wonder what it would look like in our lives if instead of the crisis moment, the desperation of the crisis moment and how persistent this guy is, even when he says, Jesus, can you come heal my son? And Jesus hits him with Man, you only, only if you see signs do you have faith. And he's persistent. He comes right back after him. He says, please come. I wonder if that level of persistence wasn't reserved for the moments of crisis, but it was reserved for tending our relationship with God and the well-being of our family and community. What would happen? And we can look at moments in Scripture when that did happen. One of them was in... David, man, when he sets up that tabernacle and he sets up people who were worshiping 24-7 around the clock at the tabernacle, and he's like, let's not cry out to God in crisis in the kingdom. Let's build the kingdom on prayer and worship. And let's say that we'll attend to God first. And as we go after the Lord, things are going to work better than they should so we won't have as many crisis moments. And after all, if I delight myself in the Lord, he'll give me the desires of my heart. And after all, better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere anyway. So this is what I should want. And it is what he wanted. And it's what he went after until he didn't and ended up with Bathsheba. And when we are tending to God in prayer, things tend to go well. But when in pride and unbelief we live in isolation, we lose track of God. 
and we end up losing track of our life. And this guy's at a critical intersection in his life where he has lost track, if he ever had track. And this is the moment where, where God reaches into our intersection and makes it something else. I used to work as a, a wraparound therapeutic staff support, TSS. If you're in the school system, you know what that is. Um, as, uh, kids who have behavioral issues get a person assigned to them to kind of help coach them in their situation. And I used to work uh, in that field for a very short period of time. Difficult job. And uh, we were never, part of the reason it was difficult is because it was very difficult to know how to connect based on the amount of regulations that there were. Could never touch the kid for any reason. Remember the one kid, I was teaching him how to do a kickflip with his skateboard. He finally got it and he went to give me a high five. And the rule was I wasn't allowed to give him a high five. I wasn't allowed to touch him, you know, which of course is, that's pretty difficult for a kid to handle. You know, in that moment, like, nope, psych. (laughs) And uh, that was an old word right there. Um, I just showed my age. I remember they did teach us one thing, one way to touch a kid. And it was when the kid was out of control and they were going to hurt themselves and hurt other people, you had to put a restraint on them. And I remember this one time when this kid uh, was freaking out and I didn't know what was going to happen. And I knew this was the moment. And I wrapped this kid up and put him in the restraint. And that restraint, of course, feels like you can't do what it is that you want to do. And I'm hedging you in, and I'm saying no on every level. But something started to happen about halfway through that restraint. The kid started to relax, and I realized how much this kid actually needed to be touched. And what felt like a disciplinary restraint very quickly became the embrace of someone who actually cared. And I could feel, almost in my body, I could feel this kid's heart changing because he needed to be touched. Jesus does this in the moments of our crisis all the time. I am railing. I'm living my own way. I'm railing. I want this from you, God. If if only I had this thing, that intersection we talked about at the beginning, that thing that we're thinking of, if only you would just fix this situation. And oftentimes, the answer is not what I expect it to be. It's not just at first, yeah, you can have it. It's him saying, unless you have signs and wonders, you have no faith. And you say, come on, do what I want. And he says, no, you have what you want. And he wraps us up. And he says, just go and believe to the guy. And part of that is him saying, I'm with you more than you know I'm with you. And you're trying to get me to come with you, but I've been with you the whole time. You just haven't had eyes to see it. I'm right here. I won't do your becking call. What I will do is open your eyes to the embrace that's already there for you. Whatever the intersection is in our life, there are signs everywhere in that intersection that are pointing to Jesus right now, saying, yes, he has the power to fix my problem. But secondly, my problem is much deeper than I think it is. And that he's much more interested in healing the deeper things in my life. Not because he's uninterested in taking care of the other thing, but that other thing is a bullhorn that's screaming out right now to me about my relationship with God. And he is calling me home to him. He is calling me home. And the sign is the sign that he is good. And that there is a yes from God to us. But oftentimes it comes through a big, deep no in order that we understand what the yes actually is. And so I want to challenge us today as we close out 
to be thinking about that prayer request. God is the miraculous God. The fact that we breathe every moment is miraculous. And God still does the miracle. The thing that we call the miracle. Even though breathing is still a miracle too. But the thing that we call the miracle, God still does it. Parkford Church, can I get an amen? (laughs) I mean, we've seen it, right? I mean, we've seen it. We've seen it. We've prayed. How many of us have received the prayer and have received God's transformation? But those things are the affirmation of God's presence always with us. And the point of tension in our life and the thing that we're asking from him right now, God has something deeper, fuller, better for us. And when we want something this deep, he wants something much deeper. And he's calling us into that. So I want to challenge us as a church right now to think in terms of instead of waiting for the crisis to be desperate, be consistent and persistent at keeping our heart tied to God, grateful for the miracles that are all over the place, grateful for the signs that are everywhere, faith alive, awake, attending to God's presence.